Good morning. morning. Everyone feels so rested today. Is it just me? I have a proposal. I propose that we gain an hour every weekend. Anyone with me? Let's just petition for this. Every weekend, let's gain an hour. On top of it, it's November, and it's going to get to 70 degrees at noon. Is this the twilight zone? I don't know where we are or what's going on, but it's kind of nice. I'll take it. Hey, I got to tell you, yesterday in this room were hundreds of people from churches across the Northeast for the Northeast Leadership Summit. And we had a day of equipping and teaching to help Christians take their next step of effectiveness for Jesus and help churches reach people better for Jesus. And about a decade ago, Berean, a group of us, were going to another church in Rochester and going to a similar type conference and learning, and it changed the direction of our church to go to those conferences as teams. And now we are a church that provides those conferences and hosts those for other churches. So I just got to tell you, we have a team of incredible volunteers that helped yesterday. They had worked for months They pulled it off yesterday. If you see people looking really tired today, it was probably that team from yesterday. So can we just give them a huge thank you for all the work they did? And it was so cool yesterday just seeing teams huddled up, processing what they were learning. And there were churches from Pennsylvania and Ohio and Jersey and New York. And and it was just so cool as light bulbs were turning on about ways to be more effective for Jesus in both our fruitfulness and our faithfulness and commitment to him. That's a pretty cool place to be. So thank you for being here today. We are in part two of our valuable series, Embracing Five Uncommon Attitudes. And I am a teaching pastor here. I'm Justin. I want to welcome our online friends today. And as we look at this attitude that's uncommon, it's going to be a lesson that kind of cuts across the grain of our culture. And so I want to tell you in advance that this may offend you. I'm sorry. Can I pre-apologize? No, you're not accepting my apology. Okay. But here's the deal. We live in a culture that is a me-centered culture. Anyone agree with that? We are a me-centered culture. We are a participation trophy culture. We want people to feel good just because we want them to feel good. They don't even have to do good. We just want them to feel good. And we are in a me-centered, consumer mindset, self-esteem heavy culture. And it's into that culture that there's a lesson today and an attitude today that we need to at least consider if it's a better alternative than what our culture is telling us. Because see, there's this bizarre idea that Jesus introduced to the world that instead of being me-centered, what if... That was the worst thing we could be. What if the worst thing we could be is self-focused and the best thing we could be is others-focused? And what if when we're self-focused, there's a word for that, what do we call that? Selfish, prideful, egotistical, I mean, there's a lot. But what if that's exactly the, the attitude that God is most opposed to. In fact, what if God looks for those people and intentionally resists them and fights against them? Look at what it says in 1 Peter. And all of you, dress yourselves in humility 
as you relate to one another. So this idea of as we put on new clothing as a follower of Jesus, it's not just physical clothing, it's humility for God. Read this with me. God, good morning. Everyone feels so rested today. Is it just me? I have a proposal. I propose that we gain an hour every weekend. Anyone with me? Let's just petition for this. Every weekend, let's gain an hour. On top of it, it's November, and it's going to get to 70 degrees at noon. Is this the twilight zone? I don't know where we are or what's going on, but it's kind of nice. I'll take it. Hey, I got to tell you, yesterday in this room were hundreds of people from churches across the Northeast for the Northeast Leadership Summit. And we had a day of equipping and teaching to help Christians take their next step of effectiveness for Jesus and help churches reach people better for Jesus. And about a decade ago, Berean, a group of us, were going to another church in Rochester and going to a similar type conference and learning And it changed the direction of our church to go to those conferences as teams. And now we are a church that provides those conferences and hosts those for other churches. So I just got to tell you, we have a team of incredible volunteers that helped yesterday. They had worked for months. They pulled it off yesterday. If you see people looking really tired today, it was probably that team from yesterday. So can we just give them a huge thank you for all the work they did? And it was so cool yesterday just seeing teams huddled up, processing what they were learning, and there were churches from Pennsylvania and Ohio and Jersey and New York, and, and it was just so cool as light bulbs were turning on about ways to be more effective for Jesus in both our fruitfulness and our faithfulness and commitment to him. That's a pretty cool place to be. So thank you for being here today. We are in part two of our valuable series, Embracing Five Uncommon Attitudes. And I am a teaching pastor here. I'm Justin. I want to welcome our online friends today. And as we look at this attitude that's uncommon, it's going to be a lesson that kind of cuts across the grain of our culture. And so I want to tell you in advance that this may offend you. I'm sorry. Can I pre-apologize? No, you're not accepting my apology. Okay. But here's the deal. We live in a culture that is a me centered culture. Anyone agree with that? We are a me-centered culture. We are a participation trophy culture. We want people to feel good just because we want them to feel good. They don't even have to do good. We just want them to feel good. And we are in a me-centered consumer mindset, self-esteem heavy culture. And it's into that culture that there's a lesson today and an attitude today that we need to at least consider if it's a better alternative than what our culture is telling us. Because see, there's this bizarre idea that Jesus introduced to the world that instead of being me-centered, what if that was the worst thing we could be? What if the worst thing we could be is self-focused and the best thing we could be is others-focused? And what if when we're self-focused, there's a word for that, what do we call that? selfish, prideful, egotistical. I mean, there's a lot. But what if that's exactly the the attitude 
that God is most opposed to. In fact, what if God looks for those people and intentionally resists them and fights against them? Look at what it says in 1 Peter. And all of you, dress yourselves in humility as you relate to one another. So this idea of as we put on new clothing as a follower of Jesus, it's not just physical clothing, it's humility. For God, read this with me, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. So God is actively working against, resisting, and pushing down those who are lifted up. And we live in a culture that is very focused on lifting everyone up, making everyone feel good. We live in a culture that's proud of pride. And it's to that culture that God has something very different. He says, listen, I resist pride. I resist arrogance. But I lift up the humble. Now, lest you think this is a countercultural attitude just for 21st century America, we're going to rewind today to 2,000 years ago, to 1st century Middle East. And in 1st century Middle East, there were 12 guys who were on the fast track to the highest office in the land. They were following a promising young leader. And they were convinced this young leader had everything it took to be their next king, president, leader of their nation. They were convinced of this. And they were pretty accurate. And so they had kind of joined his team and they had high expectations for their future. Now, what was interesting is their promising young leader kept dropping hints that the future may not be what they expected. But in, in their blind ambition and their excitement, they didn't really catch the hints. And so as it got closer to game time for this leader to kind of break through and do what he came to do, he tries to give them lessons that they'll catch because they're not getting it. They're convinced it's all about them. They're convinced that they're going to get more than a participation trophy. They're going to get a position and power and perks and privileges of the high office that he was about to take, or so they thought. And it was to this group of 12 guys that this promising young leader sits down and has a little talk. And you would have thought this talk was in 2022, but it actually was 2,000 years ago. So if you would turn with me, and we're going to look at this little talk that he had, Matthew chapter 20, and if you want to take a chair Bible and use that, it's page 790, and we're going to be in verse 20 to get started in this chapter. And listen, if you want a Bible, take that chair Bible home as our gift to you. I'm going to read out of one of those so it'll match what you're reading. It's New Living Translation. And we're going to look at this little talk that this, this young leader had with his team of 12. Verse 20 of chapter 20. And, and the story begins in a little bit of an unusual way. You're going to get a mom who enters the scene. The mom of James and John, those were two of these 12 guys, the sons of Zebedee, came to Jesus with her sons. She knelt respectfully to ask a favor. What is your request, he asked. She replied, in your kingdom, please let my two sons sit in places of honor next to you, one on your right and the other on your left. In other words, when you assume office, 
Could my sons be your VPs? Now, I'm just trying to imagine what James and John planned out to cause this to happen. I can imagine they're talking like, hey, bro, this is cool. We're following the guy. We're going to be soon in the highest office in the land. How do we lobby Jesus so he gives us a good position? We'd really like a nice business card out of this deal. And I can imagine them talking like, what should we do? I know. Let's ask the the person that, that is the most convincing person that we know to go to Jesus and ask. Yeah, let's ask mommy. So they ask mommy to go to Jesus, and, and, and they're calling in the big guns, right? So their mom goes to Jesus and says, Jesus, please, like my two boys. They're precious boys. You see how cute they are? Please, please let my boys be VPs in your new administration. Please let them have positions of significance and importance. And a mom's doing what moms do, right? Moms love their kids. That's why you have the bumper sticker, my kid's an honor student. And then the dads are the ones that put up, my kid beat up your honor student, you know. (laughs) Verse 22, but Jesus answered by saying to them, you don't know what you are asking. I mean, Jesus sees through this request. It's pure entitlement. It's pure selfishness. And it's also ignorance. Like, she doesn't know what she's asking for her boys. She has no clue. Because, see, Jesus had been telling them repeatedly that he's not leading them to positions of power and prestige. He's not leading them to perks and privileges. He's leading them to a life of suffering and sacrifice and servanthood. But they keep missing that lesson. So Jesus looks at mom, and he's like, I don't think you know what you're asking for your boys. For them to follow me doesn't mean they go to the highest office in the land and get the nice business cards and the cool corner office. It doesn't mean that at all. It means their life is going to be hard, difficult. They don't get it. And Jesus says, are you able to drink from the bitter cup of suffering I'm about to drink? Which is funny. He's not talking to the mom. He's talking to the boys. They were with mom. I can imagine they're both standing behind mom, like hiding out, listening in. And Jesus is like, hey, boys, I see you. Come on. Come on. Let me ask you a question. Can you, are you able to drink from the bitter cup of suffering I am about to drink? And their reply is, oh, yes, we are able. Who couldn't drink a little cup of something bitter to get the best offices in the kingdom? to get the best offices in the land. Who, who couldn't drink that? How hard could that be? And Jesus' response is not fully enthusiastic. Verse 23, Jesus told them, you will indeed drink from my bitter cup, but I have no right to say who will sit on my right or my left. My Father has prepared those places for the ones he has chosen. Jesus is like, yeah, guys, you will. You will drink from that bitter cup for sure. But I'm not handing out seats of prestige and power like it's candy. You know, what Jesus had just told them right before they got their mom to come speak to him is he had just told them some really heavy news. And if you go back just a few verses to verse 17, let's look at what Jesus had just told them before they sent their mom to Jesus. Verse 17, as Jesus was going up to Jerusalem, he took the 12 disciples aside privately This is a little team huddle. 
And he told them what was going to happen. Listen, we're going up to Jerusalem where the Son of Man will be betrayed to the leading priests and the teachers of the religious law. They will sentence him to die. Now, they all knew when Jesus said Son of Man, he was talking about himself. He said, hey, I'm about to go. I'm about to get the death penalty. That's what's going to happen next. Then they will hand him over to the Romans to be mocked, flogged with a whip, and crucified but on the third day, he will be raised from the dead. So this is a bombshell. Jesus is like, guys, I'm about to go experience the death penalty, and on the way there, I'm going to get tortured by the very Romans that you can't stand, that you think I'm going to conquer. I'm going to get conquered by them, in a sense. I'm going to get tortured by them. I'm going to get killed by them. And this is going to be a really bloody week. So Jesus is kind of mentally preparing them for what the week's going to hold. How do you think these guys respond to that? Like, if you heard someone that you really love say, hey, I'm going to die this week, and it's going to be messy, and I already know that I'm going to be tortured, would you then say, cool, so what's for lunch? Would you say, hey, what game's on this afternoon? Right, you wouldn't just change the topic. I think most of us would say, I'm so sorry. Like, how do you know this? Can I pray for you? Can I help you? And the very opposite of that happens. Two guys then go get their mom, and they're like, things are about to go down this week. Let's make sure that, we've got, that we're in line at the front of the line. The other ten guys are overhearing this. How do you think they're going to respond to these two prideful, get-at-the-head-of-the-line guys who are trying to cut to the front? I mean, hopefully they're annoyed and devastated that two of their team are just so selfish. Hopefully they're devastated and heartbroken that they're this self-consumed. Look at verse 24 to see how they react. When the ten other disciples heard what James and John had asked, they were, what's the word? Indignant. What selfish brats to get your mama before we could go get ours. <laughs> they feel so upset. But their anger isn't what you think. It's not an anger like, don't you see and hear what Jesus just said he's going to do? He's about to go through the worst week of his life. He's about to be tortured. He's about to die. How could you be so selfish? Jesus, how can we help you? How can we pray for you? It's not an anger like that. It's an anger like, why did you beat us to that question? So Jesus kind of sees all this controversy. He sees this division. He sees all this selfishness. And he's like, guys, time out, time out, team meeting. Huddle up, huddle up. Verse 25, but Jesus called them together. Poor Jesus, he had the patience of a saint, right? <laughs> Tongue in cheek, I say that. You know that the rulers in this world, you know that our culture has a different way of thinking. They lord it over their people. And officials flaunt their authority over those under them. That's the way the world works. Those who know the right people get off. Those who know the right people get positions. They get power. They get perks. That's the way the world works, and you all know that. Verse 26, and then Jesus just is really, really clear crystal clear. But among you, what does he say next? 
It should be different. It will be different. I can just imagine, it's like a parent having a pep talk. Hey, guys, we don't act like this. Among you, you 12 guys are going to go out and be my ambassadors to the rest of the world. Among you, it's not going to be like this, guys. It's not going to be a cut-to-the-head-of-the-line type attitude. Among you, it's going to be different. Whoever wants to be a leader among you, and they're all like, me, me. Whoever wants to be a leader among you must be your servant. I can imagine, oh, not me. Not be your servant. Jesus said, yeah, if you're going to play that game of jockeying for position, there's only one position that my followers are going to jockey for, and it's the position of the butler. The position of the custodian. The position of the person behind the scenes cleaning and washing. That's the position that my kids fight for. That's how it's going to be in my kingdom. Look at verse 27. And whoever wants to be first among you must become your slave. I mean, he goes a step further. It's not even about being a servant or a butler or custodian. You've got to be a slave. Now, let me ask again, who wants to be a leader in my kingdom? No thanks. How about James and John? They wanted to be first. Let them be the slaves. And then verse 28, Jesus says this. For even the Son of Man, that's how he talked about himself, me, came not to be served, but to serve others and to give his life as a ransom for many. Listen, when we walk into a restaurant, what do we expect? We expect to be seated and we expect to be served. And we live in a culture that teaches us to walk through life that way. I walk into a place and I expect to be served. I expect to be noticed. I expect to have my needs met. And Jesus says, no, 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 no. It's not going to be that way with my kids. They're going to have a different attitude. They're going to walk into a room and expect to serve. They're not going to walk into a place and expect to be consumers. They're going to walk into a place and expect to be a contributor. What can I do? How can I help? How can I give? I remember, I remember we were doing a pastor interview years ago of a guy who wanted to be a pastor here. And we were meeting him halfway between here and his house. And we were at a restaurant. And he was in the process of telling us how much of a servant he was and how aware he was of the needs of the people around him. I didn't plan to say this, but it just hit me. And I'm telling you what. And we're sitting there as a search team listening to him sell himself to us about how much of a servant, how aware and helpful he is. And as he's telling this to us, a waitress is coming towards him with his food and trips over a chair. And her food falls on the floor. The drinks fall on the floor. He doesn't even stop talking. And he continues to tell us how much of a servant he is. That was our last meeting with him. (laughs) It is one thing to say, oh yeah, yeah, I'm a servant. It's another thing to see someone who means nothing to you in need and actually help them when you have nothing to gain from that. Now, this may shock you, but this lesson didn't sink in. 
And so Jesus had to do it again. And he does it again. And if you'll flip a, a little bit forward in your Bible to Luke chapter 22, there's, there's a few passages I want you to see firsthand today because Jesus just keeps trying to teach his guys, his team, this lesson. Luke chapter 22. Uh, page 847 in your chair Bible. Luke 22, verse 19, it says, He took some bread and gave thanks to God for it, and he broke it in pieces and gave it to the disciples, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. After supper, he took another cup of wine. This is the very night he's going to be arrested and crucified the next day. And he says, This cup is the new covenant between God and his people, an agreement confirmed with my blood, which is poured out as a sacrifice for you. What meal is this called? The Last Supper. Yeah, uh, this was the Passover feast. It was an ancient, traditional Jewish meal. And Jesus is using it to teach them this powerful lesson that he's about to be broken, like the bread that he's breaking. He's about to be poured out like the wine that he's pouring out for them. And, and so he again is telling them, guys, I'm about to be battered and bruised and broken and, and, and poured out for you. And then verse 21, he, he drops another bombshell. Verse 21, but here at this table... Sitting among us as a friend is the man who will betray me. And I can only imagine that moment where they're like, wait a minute, we're the team, we're the inner circle. There's a traitor among us? Verse 22. For it's been determined that the Son of Man must die, but what sorrow awaits the one who who betrays him? The disciples began to ask each other, which of them would ever do such a thing? I can only imagine the whispering around that table like, one of us is a mole? One of us is going to sell Jesus out? That's crazy. He's already told us he's going to get tortured and killed, and one of us is going to be responsible for that ball being put into motion? Now, what do you think is the next thing they decided to talk about after that? Probably, hey, Jesus, how can we help you? There's got to be 11 good guys in this room because there's one bad. How can the 11 of us that aren't bad, like how can we pray for you right now? Let's put our arms around you. Let's pray for you. Let's encourage you. You know the next thing that they decided to talk about? You're not going to believe this. Verse 24. Then they began to argue among themselves about who would be the greatest among them. Are you kidding me? I, I, I imagine they're eating a meal. They're around the table. Jesus is like, guys, I'm about to be broken. I'm about to be poured out, and one of you is going to betray me. Wow. Who gets to be the best in the kingdom? I, I, I mean, it's like whiplash here. They don't get it. Jesus is like, guys, you keep jockeying for position. My kingdom is not a kingdom of position. My kingdom is a kingdom of service. And you don't get it. So Jesus has another lesson, another team huddle. Verse 25. Jesus told them, in this world, he's talking about their culture. The kings and the great men lorded over their people. Yet they're called friends of the people. But they're not really. They're taking advantage of and exploiting the people. But among you, it will be different. Does that sound familiar? He's like, guys. You're not going to act this way. You're not going to act this way. 
Those who are the greatest among you should take the lowest rank, and the leader should be like a servant. Who is more important, the one who sits at the table or the one who serves? The one who sits at the table, of course, but not here. But not here. You know, when we celebrate the Lord's Supper, this is this reminder, right, that, 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 that at Jesus Christ's table, there is no chief or captain or leader other than Jesus. All of us are on the same plane. And our race to the top is not allowed at his table. It should be a race to the bottom. It's the upside-down kingdom. And then Jesus throws this statement out here. He said, for I am among you as one who serves. She's like, guys, I'm not asking you to embrace a servant's heart. I'm telling you, you need to. I'm insisting on it. And I am among you as the one who serves. The only person around the table that night who didn't jockey for position is the one who was the son of God. The only person around the table that night who didn't insist on his rights is the one who had all the rights of the universe at his disposal. The only one at the table that night who wasn't self-focused, self-consumed, is the one who made the universe for himself. The only one around that table that night that got down, got an apron, and washed the feet of his friends is the one who made their feet. Imagine that dinner. There's only one unselfish person in that room. He's like, guys, this is not how you're going to act. This is not the attitude you're going to live with. Verse 28. You have stayed with me in my time of trial. And just as my father has granted me a kingdom, I now grant you the right to eat and drink at my table in my kingdom. And you will sit on thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. Okay, this is kind of unexpected because at this point I thought Jesus was going to pull out the pink slips and let these guys go. I would have. Time to start over. You guys do not get it. And instead Jesus is like, nope, guys, I am through you going to do something awesome and I am going to give you some of the greatest positions in my kingdom. But it's going to be my kingdom on my time, not this kingdom on your time. And to get there, you're going to have to go through some really hard stuff. Around that table that night, 12 guys, one was a traitor. That very night, he would betray Jesus with a kiss. He would feel so ashamed at what he had done that he would commit suicide within the next 48 hours. 11 guys left. Another one of those guys, his name was John, he would lead a long and troubled life. He would live, outlive all the other guys. He would live into his 90s he would be exiled to a deserted prison island. And it wasn't Hawaii. The other 10 guys, what happened to them? They died young. They, they got captured for their faith in Jesus. They, they got their rights stripped away. They got, they got tortured and every single one of those other 10 guys were killed. One guy, Peter, felt so honored 
to get killed for Jesus. That when they were going to crucify him, tradition says he refused to let them crucify him the way Jesus died. He said, I don't deserve to die the way he died. Crucify me upside down. And that is the way, traditionally, it's understood that Peter died. A race to the bottom. Jesus, a few weeks later, after he had been tortured and he died and he came back from the dead and he's given a few more last lessons to his guys, he looks directly at Peter, the guy who's going to do the upside-down cross thing, and he says this to Peter, I tell you the truth, when you were young, you were able to do as you liked. You dressed yourself and went wherever you wanted to go, but when you're old, you will stretch out your hands and others will dress you and take you where you don't want to go. Like Peter You're going to learn this servanthood thing the hard way. And you will find your purpose and your meaning and your joy and your significance by giving up all the rights that you think you have. My friends, I think it's really powerfully clear that Jesus had one chief path for his kids. One chief attitude that you and I are to embrace. And it's very simply this. We are to be servant-hearted people, and this church is to be a servant-hearted church. Jesus' family is not a family of entitlement or power or position or perks or popularity or pleasure. It's meant to be one of unselfish service and kindness and sacrifice. Now, maybe you say, I, I don't know, I don't know. I need, I need a little bit more of an example of what this looks like. Paul, who was one of the followers of Jesus, the Apostle Paul, wrote down for us how this attitude was best embodied, was best uh, illustrated. And it's in one final passage I want you to turn to. Philippians 2, page 947. And this is beautiful. This to me is kind of the cherry on the... Vanilla ice cream, because chocolate's just gross. (laughs) You're free to be wrong, buddy. You can have all my chocolate ice cream, though. Philippians chapter 2. I've heard amens, but that was a non-amen. That was an I disagree, preacher. Philippians 2. Verse 3, check this out. This is just beautiful. Don't be what? Don't be selfish. This is what Jesus over and over and over kept trying to tell his guys. Don't be selfish, guys. Don't be selfish. Don't try to impress others. Boy, we are so good at trying to impress others. Don't be selfish. Don't try to impress others. Be Humble, thinking of others as better than yourselves. Now listen, are others better than you? You could hear a trick question coming a mile away, so you say nothing. They're not better. We're equal, right? We're equal. But the reason he overcorrects here is because we know that we have such a high view of ourselves. And so he's got to leapfrog those around us. If we start thinking as others is better than ourselves, we'll start to view ourselves more accurately. Be humble thinking of others is better than yourselves. Thinking of others is better than yourselves. Your needs are more important than my needs. 
How can I serve you? How can I help you? Don't look out only for your own interests, but take an interest in others too. Listen, I just got to ask you this. When you're meeting someone new or you're in conversation with someone, do you ask them questions? Like there's very basic questions to just talk to people. Do you ask them questions about themselves and their work and their school and their family and, and their interests and their hobbies? And those are basic standard get to know you things that shows an interest in someone. It makes someone know I am seen and I'm cared about. I had a counselor uh, professor who said that most of her clients paid good money to have an hour a week with her and they wanted no advice. They just wanted an hour with someone listening to them. Because we're so self-consumed. And those questions to get to know someone to show an interest, the second level of questions were not what do you do, but how do you, what do you think about this? How do you feel about this? To get past their head, go to their heart. Show an interest in people. I think often we don't ask because we don't care. You don't ask how someone's doing because they might tell you. And some people might give you an organ recital, right? My heart hurts, my spleen hurts, my liver hurts, right? And you get the organs. Someone needs to hear them, care about them. And it should be the children of God who know how to listen. We should do this best. Like people who are far from God should know that we're close to them and we care about them. And we show an interest. That's the whole thing of the Grace Bomb series we just did is show an interest in people. Just heard a story yesterday from Pat. We were doing dinner last night after the conference and there was a, a person in Cortland at a, at a drive-thru and they had just prayed to God, God, you gotta, gotta show me a sign. Gotta show me a sign. I feel like I'm forgotten and not cared about, whatever. And they got to the window to pick up their order and all they got was their order and instead of a bill, they got a Grace Bomb card. And they said, the person in front of you wanted to pay for your meal. And she said, is this like one of those pay it forward things? They're like, nope, it's not. She went on the website, she found out about Jesus, and she found out that was the sign she had just prayed for. Because one person took an interest in her as the vehicle behind them in a drive through God's people should be good at this stuff. Verse five, you must have the same attitude, right? Attitude, this is valuable, five uncommon attitudes. You must have the same attitude that Christ Jesus had, though he was God. He did not think of equality with God as something to cling to. I can imagine around that table that night as they're having that meal and the guys are arguing over who's greater, Jesus could have just dropped the hammer and said, hey guys, I'm God. You're humans, shut up. And he could have dropped the mic and he would have been right. And he didn't. Instead, he's like, I'm a servant and I'm here to serve. Can you follow my example? He never pulled out his credentials and flaunted them. Though he was God, he did not think of equality with God as something to cling to. Instead, he gave up his divine privileges. He had all the privileges of God. He took the humble position of a slave and was born as a human being. If I was God and I was going to come to earth, I wouldn't pick a cave to be born in. I wouldn't pick an animal feed trough to be my crib. And when he appeared in human form, he humbled himself in obedience to God and died a criminal's death on a cross. 
I don't think we realize how, how sickening a cross was in that day. There was nothing glorious about a cross. It was the electric chair that day. We glamorized the cross. Can you imagine wearing a necklace with an electric chair on it? We wear the cross on it. We don't realize how gruesome and horrible and terrible and shameful a cross was. That was what Jesus signed up for. Therefore, God exalted him to the place of highest honor. He went to the lowest, so God brought him to the highest. And he gave him the name above all other names, that the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Jesus lowered himself so one day the whole world would lift him up. And now he says, if you want to be like me, adopt my attitude. Be the lowest and the least. Learn from me. And you and I live in a culture much like the first century that prioritizes self-esteem and happiness and pride. And there is a savior who says, no, it's about being unselfish, obedient, and humble. Our culture tells us this, follow your heart. Terrible thing to follow. It's one of the most deceptive things on the face of the earth. Don't follow your heart. Follow your heart. Pursue your dreams. What if your dreams are selfish? What a short-sighted thing to pursue. Serve yourself. And Jesus Christ says, no, 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 no. Follow me. Pursue obedience and serve others. I'm showing you a different way. You will not find true joy by chasing happiness. Our world is chasing happiness and finally finding only isolation and sorrow and bitterness. You will only find true joy by serving others unselfishly. My friends, we live in a consumer world. Young people, I, I feel for you because you live in such a consumer culture far more than those of us who are adults. You're growing up in a consumer culture. Everyone around you serves you and wants you to be happy. Young people, young people, listen to me, please. You will not find true joy by trying to be happy. You will only find true joy by serving the people around you. Happiness is something that when pursued disappears. It's an illusion it's a vapor. The more you reach for happiness, the more it's out of your grasp. Ask anyone who lives their life trying to find it. And they'll tell you how elusive it is. And the worst part is, then you die. And there's never been a U-Haul trailing a hearse. You don't get to take any of it with you. Christ says there's a different way. I don't know about you, but I hear the example of Jesus and I hear the lesson of Jesus and I hear Jesus telling me through time, Justin, it should be different with you. It's gonna be different with you. And I'm like, Jesus, but the bar is so high and I live in a culture that's so me-focused and I don't know how to do this thing. Can you give me an example? And I believe God gave us an example because here at Berean every week was a man who showed us what this looks like. I live pretty close to church. And I usually have responsibilities here Sunday, so I tend to come early. But there was usually someone who was here when I got here. And he'd go around and he'd unlock doors and he'd get things all ready for us. And then for the next three to four hours every Sunday, he'd just be shaking hands and patting backs. You know who I'm talking about yet? And smiling at everyone and helping you 
you and I find our seats. Jim Yankelitis showed us what a servant's heart looks like. He showed us. He found great joy in serving unselfishly. Great joy. Week after week. He had this, this deep meaning and his purpose to life because he adopted the attitude of a servant. And it wouldn't surprise me if one of the first people we meet someday when we get to the other side is Jim welcoming us, patting our back, and helping us find our place at worship with Jesus. <laughs> I can only imagine him up there today having the best worship gathering of his life. And as much as he loved us in here, he wouldn't come back for anything now. And I think it's kind of cool, his family, in honor of Jim. Jim talked so much about church and loved God and this church so much that they said, we want to just come and experience what Jim experienced. And so they are here with us today. Welcome, guys. Jim shows us how to do this thing. We're going to do a little celebration of life at 11 o'clock this morning, just in honor of Jim. We'll do some of the songs that he loved. We'll have a time to share some memories of Jim. But I can only imagine what Jim is experiencing today because Jim lowered himself every week. He took the position of chief servant. And God is highly honoring him. Jim shows us what it looks like to serve others unselfishly. If you are unhappy with life, quit trying to find your happiness and look out for the interests of others. And you will be amazed at the joy you'll find as you pursue the joy of those around you. It is such a different way to live. And my friends, Jesus paved the way for that. Would you bow with me in prayer this morning? I knew I was going to have trouble getting through the end. Because Jim, to me, embodied everything we've talked about this morning. I think Jim was God's gift to you and I. And that attitude, I, I don't mean to immortalize Jim, I don't mean to worship Jim, but boy, what an example that Jim left. And instead of coming to the table, instead of coming to church, instead of coming home, to coming to work, coming to school, and expecting those around us to notice us and serve us, what if we flip the script? And we go and we enter and we expect to show an interest in others. We expect to give of ourselves. We expect to be the chief servant. How can I help you? How can I serve you? What do you need? That is the way of Jesus. And he said, this is how it will be among my kids. So if you want to pursue true happiness, then pursue a life of sacrifice and service to those around you. There is no greater joy 
And if you've never become a follower of Jesus, I invite you today to consider becoming part of this family, the family of Jesus. It's a family where there are no outcasts, there are no strangers, there are no people that have done so much wrong that they're in a separate little corner with the bad folks. When Jesus died, his love and mercy were so complete. If you want to know how much God hates our sin, look at the cross. If you want to know how much God loves the sinner, look at the cross. Because it was there that Jesus paid the price to forgive you and I and to offer us a place with him in heaven. If you believe The Bible says very clearly that those who believe in him will not perish, but have eternal life. And you get to join this messed up, dysfunctional family of faith as we try to learn how to do it Jesus' way. Father, thank you for teaching us how to do things differently. Thank you for showing us with the example of your son what this should look like. Thank you for giving us Jim to show us today how it can look. God, I pray that you'll teach us how to serve unselfishly. And God, as we sing to you this morning about your goodness, may the joy of our heart always be about you, not us, you. May the attitude of our hearts be one of unselfish, humble, surrender to the King of Kings. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.